We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cass. Good morning. Well, this makes no sense. The extraordinarily glib R. Eric Thomas has written a memoir in essays that mostly centers on moving back to his hometown, Baltimore, after more than a decade in other cities. And he's titled it, Congratulations, the Best is Over. How can the best be over when you're moving home to Baltimore? We felt a need to interrogate him about this. We spoke with him in September about his latest book. You may have already encountered Thomas either on this show or in his first memoir, Here for It, or How to Save Your Soul in America, or his young adult novel, Kings of Beemore. His writing voice sticks with you, funny, exuberant, even when he's describing events that frustrate his gay black self. He discerns details most of us would miss, and he radiates an empathy about what we all share on this mortal earth. I started by asking why it was so hard to move back to his hometown. You know, it's funny. I would go to therapy out in Baltimore County, and I said to my therapist, you know, I I just have this, like, a tough relationship with, you know, I, I feel like this is like a weird marriage between my hometown and the person that I used to be here and the person that I'm here that I am now. And I'm just looking for, like, couples counseling. And he'd be like, for your marriage? And I'm like, no, for me and the city of Baltimore. I think it's always a little tough to go back to a place where you were unhappy. And when I was living in Baltimore in my 20s, after I had dropped out of college um, and then enrolled at UMBC uh, and then dropped out of there, um, I was not the person that I wanted to be. Um, and they were very hard years, as a lot of people's 20s are. And then I moved away and I found myself and I found community. And I think I conflated moving away with finding myself. What I learned and what I learned in the course of the book is that those two things were happening at the same time, but they weren't necessarily related. But sometimes you got to leave your place of origin. You got to leave the place that you know so well to really figure out who you are. And that's the kind of journey that I go on in the book. Well, you returned to Baltimore specifically for your husband's work. He's a Presbyterian mm -hmm. pastor. So he had a lot of human connection in his work. And, and you, as I got it, even before the pandemic, you were often working remotely, right? I was. Yeah. I, I've worked um, from home for seven years now. Uh, so so we moved into an apartment in, in Baltimore, uh, right off of Falls Road. And he, as a pastor, is like doing visits with people and, and socializing and everything is about community. And I'm sitting at home writing a column for Elle magazine. And my only company was like Regis, or not Regis, oh my gosh, I'm showing my age, uh, was Kelly and Ryan. Um, uh, and they, you know, look, no shade to morning television, but they're putting a lot of energy out for, um, for like 9 a.m. in an empty apartment. And I was trying to figure out how to get back into the groove of the city. And I think that, I think of Baltimore, somebody, um, told me once uh, that Baltimore is a speakeasy city where you have to sort of your your best experience of the city is going to be if you kind of know where to go and who to hang out with. And I think that's really true. But when you move back to a speakeasy city after 15 years away, it's a little hard to figure out what doors to knock on and which secret passwords to say. And so I was just kind of stumbling through going to trying all the different ways of making friends and connections as an adult while still trying to 
do my job. Um, and I was writing a, my first book at the same time. So a lot of my work was really just directed to the computer. And the computer is not a very good friend. Even moving into this beautiful apartment in a converted factory near the Jones Falls, even getting moved in was an adventure. <laughs> Goodness, yes. The movers, were they were scamming us. We didn't realize. The price was too good to be true, and they said that they would pack our apartment and they would move it for us all for this very low price. And I'd never had packers before. So I was like, oh, I am glamorous. I'm a Nancy Myers heroine. I am living my best life. I'm living it like it's golden. And... Long story short, the truck broke down on 95, not their fault. And so they didn't arrive until about two in the morning. And when they arrived, you know, these three guys that had just been like found off of Craigslist by this shell moving company, they started unloading all our belongings onto the side of Falls Road. And they were doing that because they couldn't get the truck into the garage. And so we, you know, we had all our belongings on the side of the street, like we had been broken up with. And then my husband, <laughs> David, and I have to like move our stuff into the apartment silently and quietly in the middle of the night um, so as not to wake our neighbors. And I was like, oh, this is activating the core Baltimore trauma, which, of course, is the uh, Baltimore Colts leaving the city in the middle of the night in Mayflower moving trucks. And I was like, this is the wound for Baltimorean. I cannot be moving in the middle of the night. This is inauspicious. This is a bad omen. And I really held on to that. And of course, these movers, you know, such cameras, they pack things so terribly, they just threw things into the boxes. So we finally get in 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. We just want to go to sleep. And we were trying, digging through all these boxes, looking for sheets. And it's just random, just random assortment of things, like a hoarder house in all these boxes. We finally find the sheets and they're under all of our shoes, delightful, and also under beach stuff from a recent trip. So we pull out these sheets and they're just caked with like sand and we just put them on the bed and we collapsed. And, and, and that was how we began our time in Baltimore. At which point you said to David, welcome home. Welcome home, Han. Yeah. <laughs> I, he was so shocked. The first time we came down to look at apartments, we went to um, the Museum of Industry. And when I was a child, I recorded a, a small piece of um, uh, voice acting work for for an exhibit there that they still play. And so I wanted to show him, you know, sign the, you know, sign some autographs or whatever. And he was shocked. We were like listening to some of the recordings um, in the museum. And he was like, what is everyone saying? And why do they sound like that? <laughs> of course, I believe everything you write. But it is hard for me to understand how two guys as charming and fun as you and David had so much trouble making friends in Baltimore. <laughs> oh, well, it's all an illusion is the thing. Um, no, I think one of the things that's difficult and like, you know, not to discount the people who reached out and the people who, you know, we made good connections with, but I think that it's difficult to make friends in your 30s in the same way that you make friends in your 20s, um, because I, I think a lot of your 20s is about sort of casting about and showing up places and trying new things and a lot of your 30s is saying like these are the things that i like to do and these are the places that i like to go and being sort of settled into more of a groove the other thing about making friends as an adult is that it's like just deeply embarrassing um you have to like put yourself out there in this way that is like normal and fine and we all should do 
but also feels so ridiculous. You're like meeting a person at a party and then you have to like text them the next day. Like you're trying to get a second date, but you're not. It's just platonic. And you're like, hey, we had that great conversation about that one random movie. Do you want to build like a 20 year friendship on the basis of that? And sometimes the answer is yes, but sometimes it's like, no, I think I'm good. <laughs> so this was about a midlife crisis? Yeah, well, yes. And I didn't realize I was having a midlife crisis because I am, um, you know, famously very young and uh, I look even younger. But my therapist told me he was like a lot of these things you're experiencing, this sort of sense of disorientation and placelessness and whatnot. These are very sort of normal for as you start to enter middle age. And I was like, enter middle age? Well, how big is the town? Um, and But the fact of the matter is, you know, I'm 42 now. It was 38 when, when we had this conversation. And if you consider the arc of life, I am entering a middle phase. And I think one of the questions of this book and the questions that I have as a person is like, well, how long is the middle? And how do I define it as a space that is whole and complete on its own as opposed as opposed to just a passage from one part one part of my life to another part this is on the record i'm sheila cast talking with r eric thomas about his new book of essays congratulations the best is over you are a city guy mm-hmm. as you point out on page 121 you are spiritually mentally and philosophically opposed to suburbs and besides that suburbs terrify you So how do you explain what you and David (laughs) did two months into the pandemic? I think a lot of us made decisions um, those first couple months in the pandemic that are unexplainable. And I think our decision to move from, we were living in Remington at the time, to move from Remington where we were very happy and we were close to a food hall that we loved and to a CrossFit gym that I never went to but respect and to move from there to way out in phoenix maryland past hunt valley um to three order three quarters of an acre of land i think it was really just about trying to figure out how to keep ourselves safe you know distant from other people and also trying to figure out maybe there's a different shape to our lives but i Sheila, i was not prepared for have, like something as simple as having a lawn. Like I do not understand it. I do not understand that you have to mow the grass every other week, every week. I'd see the guy across the street riding around on his mower and his Hanes t-shirt and drinking a beer every Saturday morning. And I'd be like, what is this weird hobby he has? I don't <laughs> understand. I don't understand mulch. I don't understand it. But it was always on sale at Lowe's. And so I'd buy it because I'm like, wow, I love a sale. And then I, I don't understand weeds. We had a we had a well system, and then the well went out, and then we had to spend far too much money, uh, like a private school's uh, year of tuition worth of money to replace the well. I was like, the water's in the ground. Can I just like scoop it out? It was a disaster, only because I'm a city cat. I'm a city mouse or whatever. I don't know which animal is from the city, but I am all of them. Every animal in the city, I am. And I was... But I went, you know, I went to park school um, as a child, and so I was used to being in suburban spaces. We rode horses, and, and there was a pond, but I didn't understand the work it takes to make the suburbs home, and that was a real struggle. And it, it's a it's a hilarious struggle for the most part, but there there is a serious aspect 
you considered writing a letter to your new neighbors so they would not be surprised to see a black man in their neighborhood. And yet, the most terrifying moment you write about was not in the suburbs, but where you grew up in West Baltimore. I would like listeners to hear what you wrote on page 141. Can you give us a short version of why you were in your hometown neighborhood of West Baltimore at 2 a.m. that morning? Absolutely. So this is maybe a, a month after we'd moved into the house, maybe two months, I get a phone call in the middle of the night from my mother. And it's very hard to hear, but I get this call from my mother and she she said that somebody had ran into both her and my father's cars and um, she was waiting outside for the police and she had locked herself out. And I was terrified. I was terrified just because a middle of the night phone call is terrifying, but also terrified because my parents' neighborhood is you know, it was redlined decades ago and has never really recovered. Um, and they live maybe a couple blocks um, what, from where Freddie Gray was murdered. And and so like this is and this is where I grew up. This is I understand the, the dangers inherent in this space. And so I went tearing downtown um, and charging across the intersection toward my mother and a police officer um, and my brother. So would you would you read to us from page 141? Yeah, there we are. We were about 12 feet from each other. I saw her head turn toward me. I looked beyond her to my mother and then back at her. I kept walking. I noticed her arm move, then her hand. She wrapped her fingers around her holstered gun. I froze. Oh, Eric, you've forgotten yourself. All the adrenaline drained out of my body at once and it was replaced by a cold, bare terror. A plain thing, not a panic, not messy, a calculation made from fear. I raised my eyebrows in a smile behind my mask. I checked the position of my hands at my sides, limp, away from my pockets and my hoodie. Suddenly I dropped back into reality, what year it was, what neighborhood this was, who I was. I didn't move. Seconds earlier, my thoughts swirled with stress, worry, and questions, and now everything zeroed in on this one interaction and my ability to perform belonging, of all things, back in the broken-down shell of the red line neighborhood where I grew up. Still unmoving, I called cautiously to my mother. Hi. Hi, my mother called back. We kept our eyes on each other. The police officer shifted her hand off her gun. I had my heart in my throat. Yeah, it was... I, I still sort of get chills thinking about that moment because I wasn't I as as a as a person in America, as a black person, as a citizen of Baltimore, I understand how to engage in interactions with uh, police officers in ways that keep me safe. Um, but this is also right around the time of so many, you know, so many different um interactions with police officers with, between police officers and black people coming to light and and creating you know so much grief and conversation and i found myself standing in the middle of a street in west baltimore facing a police officer with her hand on her gun and i i'm fortunate to say that i that is something that has never occurred to that has never happened to me before and yet in that moment, I sort of saw all the ways it could play out. It was terrifying to me. Um, and it was because I was moving, I was moving too quickly toward her. Um, 
and from out from the darkness, you know, and I just feel very fortunate uh, um, that that it did it in, in a different way. Um, that there wasn't more fear or anxiety on her side, and and that I sort of clocked it when I did, so that I could change my behavior, so that I we could move on with this interaction. Do you still live in the suburbs? Uh, we don't. David got a different job, and so we moved. Um, we moved again. We've moved, uh, I think, six times in the last seven years. So uh, we're really we're getting very good at it. <laughs> we're in a, we're doing the Oregon Trail of our of of a life. We need to take a quick break in our conversation with R. Eric Thomas about his latest book of mostly humorous meditations about coming home to Baltimore. It's called Congratulations, the Best is Over. When we're back, finding hope. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. Today we're revisiting our conversation with author R. Eric Thomas, who is a funny, thoughtful guy, full of insights about himself and the people in his life. Reading his latest book, Congratulations, the Best is Over, I was floored when I encountered this statement. Quote, For most of my life, I've gone through periods of depression, sometimes intense, sometimes more ambient. Close quote. When we spoke in September, I asked Thomas to read the rest of the paragraph. I'm tempted to say that I have a struggle with depression because that's the commonly used phrase, but it's really more of an ongoing partnership than a struggle. Depression just hangs out with me like a lax babysitter who is ambivalent about my bedtime. Depression is a text conversation that ebbs and flows. Every once in a while, depression texts, hey, have you seen this meme? It's going to psychologically wreck you for six months brunch soon? Depression is like Jiminy Cricket riding around on my shoulder, but instead of acting as my conscience, it just mumbles, you're bad, things are bad, and nothing will improve. And at that point, I'm like, like we get it, girl. Thanks. Tell us more about this partnership you have with depression. Here's the thing about depression I've found is that it tells you that you are alone, and it tells you that there is no end to it, and it tells you that you're the only one. And I, and I do think that changing the terminology from for me, for myself, from a struggle with depression, which it is still a struggle, to a partnership gives me more agency, which is not to say that I can think myself out of this relationship, but to say that I am, I, I am not my depression. Um, I am um, a fully formed person with my joys and my fears and my anxieties and my hopes and that depression is a thing that is walking along with me but it's something that I've always experienced um, even as a young child and I'm fortunate that I I found um, humor as a as a conduit toward hope um, fairly early on um, I, I sort of remember the first time that I made someone laugh and it was actually in a my my high school had a, a peer support group where it was me and a group of friends and we would just sit and wait for people to come in and ask us for advice. And no one ever did. Um, and so we would just sit around and uh, and prepare to be useful. And I, I we were having a conversation and I made a joke 
and the room laughed and i felt um i felt this new uh bloom uh in me and a lot of times that i've used humor as in the ensuing years i've used humor as a way of um hurting myself or putting myself down but now the way i use it is as a way of reminding myself that i am not just the dark feelings um i am somebody who is reaching for a, a more beautiful, a different version of life. That's Baltimore-born R. Eric Thomas talking about his new book of essays, Congratulations, The Best is Over, mostly about making a life in Maryland with his husband, David. This is on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. I imagine some readers will understand depression better after reading Congratulations, The Best is Over, and some will understand marriage better. You write that getting married is a mutual agreement to hope. Explain that. There is no way when you say your vows, when you accept a proposal, sign a marriage certificate, there's no way that you can know what you will have to do together. There are things that we sort of acknowledge are going to happen in life, you say, better or worse, till death do us part. But I think so rarely do we really put true thought and weight into what that means. And we may have inklings, but to go through it is a different thing. However, what we do know is that we in this partnership have decided that it is better together than it is apart and that the future together will be better because we're together. And so we are mutually agreeing that our best days are ahead of us as well as our worst days, but we are mutually agreeing to craft a world together that is beyond what we are living now and beyond what we can dream of. And it's not about you know, buying that dream house or going on that dream vacation, putting together the perfect family or having a really beautiful family portrait, although I really respect people who are able to do that. It's about saying, I think that I should stick around on this world. And I think I should stick around with you. And I think that is such a, such a powerful statement. Um, and I, it's stunning to think through that another person would, would put so much of their hope into that, into me, into, into our union. Which, of course, brings us back to the title of your book and the image on the cover of that mangled, <laughs> vividly decorated cupcake upended in its pleated pink paper holder with its topside-down birthday candle still burning. Really? Mm -hmm. The best is over? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. But and there's a big asterisk, I think, with all of this. The best is also always becoming. There are things that we will never get back. And I think, you know, when I think about what the best in the title refers to i'm thinking about you know people saying the best years of our lives or people saying the best day of my life you know i think about my wedding day and people say oh your wedding is the best day of your life i had an incredible wedding i'm very i you know people can read about it in my first book here for it i do not think that was the best day of my life i was very stressed i didn't even have dessert on that day it can't be the best day of my life sorry no offense but we have had to say goodbye to so many things. That is what life is about in some ways. We've had to say goodbye to the version of the world that we thought we were living in. We've had to say goodbye to people that we care about. And so that version that the, of the best is over. However, we are still 
approaching some aspects of our lives, some of which we can't even imagine right now, that will be the best. And so I want to, I believe that there is not one version of the best. There is not just one cupcake. And so when one falls on the floor, that's what, that's the thing. You make a dozen cupcakes. You don't make one cupcake. So one falls on the floor, you get to eat another one. I think that there is so much more beautiful coming for us, even as we leave behind so much beautiful that we don't want to let go of. Happy cupcakes. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure as always. Our Eric Thomas's book of essays, all about coming home to Baltimore, is Congratulations, the best is over. He'll be in conversation with the acclaimed novelist Anne Patchett, whose new book is Tom Lake, on Monday, December 11th at 6 p.m. at the Church of the Redeemer, hosted by the Ivy Bookshop. The event is free, but registration is required. We have information about how to do that at the On the Record page at wypr.org. I'm Sheila Cast. Glad you're with us on the record. Join us again tomorrow.